Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. The news you are about to hear from Walter Bingham is an April Fool's newscast. Welcome to the program for April 1st, 2022, which is the 29th of Adar 25782 in the Hebrew calendar. Here is the news. London. At her recent public appearance at a memorial service honouring her late husband Prince Philip, the 95-year-old Queen Elizabeth rested near a hot mic and was heard to tell Prince Charles that he should prepare himself for kingship as she will abdicate after Easter. Beijing. It seems that there is a mole in the highest echelons of the Chinese government who leaked that President Xi Jinping has decided to abandon his intention to regain control of the former province of Taiwan to avoid a conflict with the US. Riga. To avoid the inevitable bloodshed, the SEMA, the Latvian parliament, has voted 78 to 22 to accept the ultimatum from President Putin to join the Russian Federation or risk war. Berlin. Reports from the German capital indicate that the movement to displace recently elected Social Democrat Chancellor Olaf Scholz and reinstate the conservative Angela Merkel is gaining strength. Some 500 people were arrested at demonstrations in several cities. Jerusalem. It has just been announced that President Isaac Herzog and his wife Michal will pay a visit to the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas at the Mukata, his official residence, on the occasion of Ramadan and bring with them the government's proposal for a permanent peace between the two nations. Paris. All opinion polls for the French presidential election later this month show that the far-right-wing National Party's Marine Le Pen has a substantial lead over the incumbent Emmanuel Macron. Le Pen's policy includes expulsion of all illegal immigrants and establishing a register of all Jews in the country. Jerusalem. Following the recent visit to Israel of U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, the government has agreed to his insistence to open a Palestinian mission in our capital city. That, in effect, is recognition of the state of Palestine and the Histadrut, the general organization of workers in Israel, has threatened disruption of the economy unless this plan is withdrawn. That was the April 1st news. The news you just heard from Walter Bingham was an April Fool's newscast. The return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel was prophesied in the Bible thousands of years ago and is coming true today. Shalom. Join me, Josh Wander, on Israel Unplugged. Listen in as we delve into the spiritual and physical aspects of the Jewish return to Zion. We'll discuss the biblically mandated, historic, and of course practical understandings of this incredible transition from exile to redemption. That's Israel Unplugged, every Monday on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. And now, here is Walter Bingham. I hope you were not fooled by the news. Now, for the rest of the show. In today's program, I shall discuss the consequences of U.S. President Biden's blunders, as well as the malaise 
that is permeating Western European countries. Last but by no means least, is our government handling the current murderous terror wave well enough? Let's make sense of what is happening and examine what's at stake. It's becoming increasingly apparent, even obvious, that the leader of the free world, the current President of the United States, Joe Biden, is no longer able to carry that heavy burden and fulfill it with the diplomatic skill necessary for that responsible task. As is expected, Biden frequently appears on TV to explain to the American people the reason for his latest domestic policy decisions. From time to time, either from the White House or some other location he is visiting, at home or abroad, he also addresses a wider public on international affairs. On many of these occasions, the International Press Corps is present and keen to question him. More often than not, he turns to leave fast, while the reporters call out their questions without getting a response. One can only speculate why he avoids to answer, knowing full well that the media's task is to interpret the hints and nuances of his remarks. Mostly, the speech is composed with the help of his advisers and read from a teleprompter. Trying to show his independent thoughts, President Biden is inclined to ad-lib, and that is when he frequently commits a faux pas which, as I can imagine, will cause his advisers to despair. The most recent examples occurred during his several speeches in Warsaw, Poland. Speaking to a group of US soldiers, he praised the bravery of the Ukrainian people, quote, that you will see when you are there, whereas US policy is to avoid action within Ukraine. Referring to President Putin of Russia, Biden said, For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power. Like on all other occasions, the White House was forced to issue a retraction, saying that Biden meant power over other countries and not regime change in Russia. This was definitely an undiplomatic remark to which Russia immediately responded that only the Russian people can decide who their president will be. But that too is of course incorrect, since Putin just changed the law to be able to remain president until 2036. When asked how NATO would respond if Russia would use chemical weapons, Biden responded, in kind. It would be unthinkable that the West would use WMDs, weapons of mass destruction, and the White House walked back on that one too. While the US administration announced stringent sanctions on Russia, Biden insisted at a news conference following the NATO summit in Brussels that, quote, sanctions never deter. This contradicts the policy of the American administration as expressed by several ministers and generals. On at least two occasions, he referred to his vice president as President Harris. Those are just some examples of President Biden's blunders. A slip of the tongue, which is immediately corrected, can happen to anyone, but Biden's continuous errors and lapses of memory 
point to a serious cognitive disorder that will increase over time. While all this is going on and the administration talks of the effect of severe sanctions against Russia, America sends Russia $74 million a day for oil imports instead of getting it out of its own ground. All this signals to the world that America is weak and her leader's words cannot be taken seriously. The United States finds itself between a rock and a hard place because if and when the time will come to invoke Amendment 25 of the Constitution to replace the President because of illness, it is the Vice President who takes his place, which today would be Kamala Harris. She has proved herself incapable of carrying out the few duties with which she has been charged by the President. The most important is to deal with and formulate policy to control the continuous flood of illegal immigrants at the country's southern border with Mexico. Her attitude was foreseeable because she belongs to the far-left group of legislators for whom immigrants will become a future source of voters for the Democrat Party who will be grateful for receiving all social benefits. There is even talk of illegal non-citizens getting voting rights. The third in succession to become president is the Speaker of the House of Representatives, currently Nancy Pelosi, who is also leaning to the left almost to the extent of falling over. It is difficult to believe that the US, with its present leadership and policy, will be able to sustain its place as the world's superpower. There is currently a malaise afflicting several Western powers, with the electorate leaning away from the centrist parties. After the September 2021 elections in Germany, the centre-left Social Democrat Party, the SPD, wrested power from 18 years of Christian Democrat CDU majority. They installed an SPD Chancellor and it seems that the 16 German Länder counties, many of the remaining 10, will follow suit. There is a crowded field of candidates for the French presidential election on April 10th. Whilst the opinion polls predict a narrow win for the incumbent Emmanuel Macron, he is again closely followed by veteran far-right National Front leader Marine Le Pen, who is making her third attempt for the presidency after reaching the second round in 2017, where she was finally beaten by Macron. Marine followed her father, Jean-Marie Le Pen, who is a virulent anti-Semite and Nazi sympathizer who described the gas chambers used in concentration camps as a mere detail in history. Europe awaits the result of the election. Italy is getting perilously close to moving further to the right with the ascent of Georgina Meloni's Brothers of Italy party, the lingering supporters of Mussolini, who with others are in a coalition with Lega, a right-wing federalist populist party. So, at the next election, Italy's choice is right 
or further right. The Italians call it rompiscatole, a pain in the neck. Another Central European country is Austria, presently ruled by a coalition led by the Austrian People's Party, a Christian Democrat and Liberal Conservative political party. But they too have their problems with the far-right Freedom Party of Austria, the FPO, who have a representation of 30 members in the parliament and much support among the population. All this shows that the far-right parties are in the ascent in Europe and this does not bide well for democracy. In Israel, a very unusual situation developed. At the last general election in March 2021, the center-right coalition of Benjamin Netanyahu was voted out by a grand deception. Naftali Bennett, of the formerly right-wing Yemina party, and Jair Lapid, of the supposedly centrist Yeshatid party, formed a coalition government that was short of four votes, and they came from the Arab Ram party of Mansour Abbas. He struck a hard bargain for their support. The agreement included pledges to spend approximately 16 billion to improve Arab infrastructure and reduce crime in Arab towns, to protect homes built without permits in Arab villages and to recognize illegal Bedouin settlements in the Negev desert. Throughout its first year, Bennett's government has shown that it is in the pocket of the Muslim Brotherhood to whose demands Bennett accedes knowing that Mansour Abbas would withdraw from the coalition and his government would fall. That's holding on to power at any price. The Arab press recently confirmed Abbas's affiliation when they wrote Muslim Brotherhood's true colors on display as Arab Islamist party joins Jewish nationalists in Israeli coalition. Bennett has lied to the electorate by presenting himself as a supporter of incorporating parts of Judea and Samaria and the Jordan Valley into Israeli sovereignty. Instead, he's tearing down our settlements and legalizing Arab construction. Here I echo the words of President Biden, for God's sake this man cannot remain in power. And I add, bring back sanity. A clear manifestation of this government's failed policy is the re-emergence of murderous terrorism by Arab citizens and residents of Israel. As I prepare this program, they have succeeded in murdering 11 Israeli Jews in attacks in Beersheba, Hadera and Bnei Brak. During just this week, while our government is using the war in Ukraine to gain the admiration of the world, by the disproportionate number of refugees we accept and by concentrating on providing aid abroad, it has been neglecting internal security. Hi, I'm Steve Miller. And I'm Matt Zucker. Join us for Lighten Up, where we take a look at the week's current events in Israel and from around the Jewish world through a humorous lens. If you've been paying attention during these crazy times, you know that it's a challenge to parody life anymore. 
But join Steve and I as we give it the old college try. Not only is being happy an obligation, but life is just too short to take it all so seriously. So join me, Steve Miller. And me, Matt Zucker. For a lighten up every Monday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. Israel, only on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. And now, here is Walter Bingham. Until it awoke, this week, the government has been neglecting internal security. The terrorists were quick to take this opportunity to act while it was possible. It's the old story. Israel is reactive instead of proactive. In an effort to excuse the lack of supervising the movements of known terrorists, who have already served prison sentences for security offences, Bennett blames ISIS on instigating the terror attacks. I say ISIS schmices, they are from an Arab extremist minority living in our midst. Our Prime Minister continues to show incompetence. In a statement on the recent murderous attack in Bnei Brak, he said, They will not move us from here, we will prevail. Just stop and think for a moment. Even just the thought to make such an official statement shows a defensive and reactive attitude. Does Bennett not think before he opens his mouth? There are consequences to our Prime Minister's statement. Whilst the actions of lone wolves are difficult to anticipate, the latest attacks were carried out by known individuals and their friends. Are our intel services asleep? We cannot afford these losses. Our security services must carry out surprise raids, initially on known hostile locations to search for weapons, arrest their storekeepers and place suspects into administrative detention. I know that I should be accused of advocating methods unbecoming to a Western democracy, but make no mistake, we are at war and must defend our people. Finally, we have the legal option of the death penalty, only once before used, and should use it again for terrorist murderers and their accomplices. That will obviate the demands of Hamas for the release of imprisoned terrorist murderers in exchange for Israelis held by the enemy. Israel is far too much concerned about our image abroad at the cost of security at home. Remember how we were admired in 1967 when we showed strength? The government must also remove the shackles that prevent the IDF from shooting at the threatening enemy without fearing that they get indicted, as is so often the case. The bottom line, and now I will surprise you, we have no choice but to bring back Benjamin Netanyahu to clean up the mess. He is also the most skilled negotiator to prevent the intended folly of a soft nuclear agreement with Iran. I believe that the court cases against him will collapse, or the sentences being a period of community service, which is tantamount to being leader of the opposition or even prime minister. Unfortunately, history has shown that he is prone to making promises 
that are either election ploys or on which he reneged because of circumstances that could affect his standing in the international community. Do you remember that Prime Minister Netanyahu made great play of his intention to annex the Jordan Valley? He said the annexation plan will cover the entire Jordan Valley along the whole border from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. It will exclude Jericho and its environs and doesn't annex even one Palestinian. Now it looks as if that was an electioneering ploy. Following the announcement by the ICC, the International Criminal Court in The Hague, that they want to begin proceedings starting against the annexation of the Jordan Valley, the Prime Minister announced that he freezes the plan. Why did he get cold feet? We've already established that the ICC has no jurisdiction over Israel. I can only imagine that Netanyahu wants to safeguard his love for international travel and fears arrest abroad as a result of any proceedings by the ICC. After again becoming Prime Minister, he should go ahead, fulfill his promises, even if he means he has to curtail some of his travel. Otherwise, how can his promises be trusted? Having said all this, Netanyahu is still the best choice for Israel. As we are approaching Yom HaShoah, Israel's Holocaust Remembrance Day, and we continually get new listeners who are not acquainted with my personal history, I shall recount here just a few of my life experiences. These days, anti-Semitism is never out of the news. I was born and raised in Germany. I saw the book burning and experienced Kristallnacht. Times were very hard for Jews. The Nazis turned the screw ever tighter. But before the outbreak of war, at age 15 and a half, I came to England with a kinder transport, all by myself. As you see, I survived and eventually joined the British Army, landed on the beaches of Normandy and fought through France, Belgium and Holland until, as a German speaker, I was transferred to counterintelligence, trained in London and when World War II ended, I was a British sergeant working for counterintelligence in Hamburg, Germany. My first job was to visit all the offices of the many Nazi organizations, look through the documents and decide which to retain locally and which to send to Schaefe, the Supreme Headquarters Allied Expeditionary Force document section in London for further evaluation and necessary dissemination. The area I was to cover with my partner was all of Greater Hamburg with a population at the time of one and a half million. It was an impossible task. Most important were of course the local office files because they showed details of Nazis to be arrested. Eventually my job expanded to other work, wearing civilian clothes or officers insignia, to enhance my authority when engaged in certain work. The highest-ranking Nazi I interviewed was Foreign Minister Joachim von Ribbentrop. He tried to tell me that he knew nothing of the mass extermination of Jews until he read it in the newspaper published by the British. Did he really believe that British intelligence agents are stupid?
I was certain that as a result of our victory over Nazi Germany, anti-Semitism can be eradicated by example and education. But their indoctrination was so strong that it took several years for them to realize the error of their ways and that they've been duped by Nazi propaganda. Eventually, we experienced several decades of relative quiet and peace for Jews, a kind of suspension of anti-Jewish activity. The German and other governments enacted laws to punish Holocaust denial and anti-Semitic talk. I personally was very happy that my contribution to eradicate that evil bore fruit and that, as Jews, we could now again follow our faith without fear. But it was an illusion. Anti-Semitism bubbled away below the surface, prevented by laws to show itself openly. Today, in 2022, cemeteries are being desecrated, Jewish premises stopped, synagogues attacked, and Jews physically hurt. The massive immigration from Muslim countries helped to fuel the German anti-Semitism. The excuse that it's a protest against the activities of the State of Israel is a masquerade for Jew hatred. But anti-Semitism is now widespread throughout Europe and even further afield with deadly results. Even the Golden Medina, the golden area for Jews, which was New York, is now severely tarnished. In fact, the gold has worn off. There was an anti-Semitic hate crime in New York every day. Already as a result of the criminal justice reform, there were cases where anti-Semitic attackers were not detained on remand and committed another attack on Jews while awaiting trial for the first case. But there was much more all over the U.S., our generations of Holocaust survivors can see the striking similarity with the early 1930s, but with two important differences. First of all, we have the State of Israel that will never allow another Holocaust. Secondly, anti-Semitism is widely discussed in the media. However, Jews will never live in peace and quiet so long as the phenomenon of anti-Semitism disguised as anti-Zionism is allowed to flourish. It is my view that the usual punishment for anti-Semitic offences will never be enough to deter others from doing the same. And I suggest that the unusual system that Israel employs would have a great impact on violent anti-Semites in the Western world. I'm referring to the destruction of their homes or those owned by their immediate family. The effect for the Western mentality would be surprising. But the oh-so-correct Westerners will never do that but would rather sacrifice the Jews on the altar of political correctness. Some years ago, when as a sideline I did some acting, I was commissioned by the larger circulation English newspaper to sit for several hours in an important London street, dressed as a beggar, with a notice, hungry and homeless, please help. 
That's when I learned what it's like to be in such a situation. Most people walked by without giving me a glance. Others let their children in a large circle away from me. Just a few gave them money to give to me. I did, however, collect nearly 80 pounds, and that went to charity. More after the break. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. This is Shai Bentico, and each week I'll be webcasting to you from Judea, origin of the word Jew, a people besieged and beleaguered in every generation. Nazi Germany's but a memory, but in its place the world invented the phantom Palestinians as this generation's internationally authorized Jew killers. Tune in for a different slant on life in Israel, Phantom Nation, every Monday. Some years ago, when as a sideline I did some acting, I was commissioned by the larger circulation English newspaper to sit for several hours in an important London street, dressed as a beggar, with a notice, hungry and homeless, please help. That's when I learned what it's like to be in such a situation. Most people walked by without giving me a glance. Others let their children in a large circle away from me. Just a few gave them money to give to me. I did, however, collect nearly 80 pounds, and that went to charity. Yes, we all think we understand and give charity, but there is nothing like experiencing the feeling of poverty for yourself. Regular listeners to this program know that I end each one with a reference to the elderly who are prone to loneliness, particularly at times of the year when families usually get together and celebrate, like Passover. You will also know that I am one of the elderly. But thank God I have a large circle of friends and family and am very seldom alone, although I live by myself in an apartment. Every Shabbat I'm invited and I'm very happy. It happened last weekend when the weather in Jerusalem was stormy and very wet. By the way, you'll notice that I'm not decrying it because we're happy when it rains. So because of the weather, I was advised to stay home. That was the first time in a long period that I spent Shabbat by myself all alone. I can tell you that it was not pleasant. Yes, I did have all the food I needed, but that was all. Nobody phoned, and as a Torah-observant Jew, I couldn't watch TV or use the computer, and strictly speaking, I should have devoted my time to Jewish studies and not have read secular literature or newspapers. On this occasion, too, as in the street, it drove it home to me how right I am to regularly remind listeners of the importance to look in on elderly neighbors or even volunteer to help the elderly. Remember that it was these generations who risked their lives and fought for the freedom that you enjoy today and who, during their working life, helped to build the country in which you now live in relative peace and quiet. So please visit the elderly who are lonely and melancholy and yearn for company. For some reason, during the past couple of weeks, articles were published about the late Theodore Bickel and the Theodore Bickel Legacy Project, a non-profit center for Jewish creativity and culture founded by his wife, Amy Ginsberg. 
Bikel was a larger-than-life personality, an actor, singer, musician, raconteur, activist for social justice, and more. He died in 2015, aged 91. I had the opportunity to interview him just before his 80th birthday, and here's the interview in full, which describes his multifaceted life and work. One of the many fields in which Jews excel is the performing arts. Famous musicians, actors, singers, dancers, producers, painters, authors, even so-called pop stars. We have them all, and many at the pinnacle of their particular field. With me today is an artist who is somewhat different. He's not only an actor, off stage, screen, television, but also a folk singer, guitarist, author, lecturer, and even raconteur. He's the multifaceted Theodor Bikel. Welcome. Thank you. Now, you were born in Vienna, and after the Anschluss, the annexation of Germany in 1938, you emigrated with your parents to what was then the British mandate of Palestine. Your mother tongue was German. So, uh, did you already know Hebrew, or did you have to learn it when you arrived there? Oh, I knew Hebrew. The Hebrew teacher came to the house when I was five, and uh, my father wisely uh, insisted on it. I knew Hebrew very well. I was so uh, to me that uh, nothing was strange in, in terms of the language or the culture. Now, your English is of course faultless and do you find it easy to learn foreign languages and how many do you speak today? I speak five well. I get by in a couple more and, and I sing in 21 languages. <laughs> Actually um, English was my fifth language and I speak it better than the President of the United States. <laughs> Maybe true. When did you discover that you had this uh, extraordinary musical and acting talent, and which came first? Fairly early in life. Um, in an amateur sense, the music came first. I always sang. I sang with my family, to family and friends and all that. Uh, professionally, the, the, the theater came first. So I believe you started uh, your acting career uh, as an apprentice at the Habima Theatre in Tel Aviv, which was already a, a well-known theatre. Have you always wanted to be an actor? I suppose if you talk in terms of uh, once you become a sentient uh, human being and you, you sort of feel your way into what, lay, what might lie ahead in the future, I... Uh, yeah, no, I want to be a linguist, really. I want to be an academician, um, uh, maybe a professor of languages or a translator. But, you know, I, I found out that you could cultivate your languages and uh, do this, do it in, in a fashion that also pleases you emotionally, and the theater certainly did that. Well, you certainly could have been an academician, judging by the speech you gave today. Now, after... The Habima. Well, where would you have gone from there? Where did you want to go from there? Well, uh, we broke away a few of us and, and created our own theater because we felt that Habima was a little hidebound and they insisted on doing a plays with Eastern European or, or, or Jew Jewish flavor. And we wanted to do world theater, albeit in Hebrew. So that's why we created our own theater, the, the Kamari or Chamber Theater. And um, 
the war was still going on at the time. As uh, soon as the war was over, I felt that I didn't, perhaps didn't know enough, and I wanted to flap my wings, and I needed needed to do that in in a wider in the forum, and so I went to England to study. And you studied at the uh, Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. And was it in London that your career took off? Because I believe that Sir Lawrence Olivier took you under his wing. That's quite true. I, I did a couple of uh, a few plays in small theatres, and uh, one fine day, Olivier was casting a streetcar named Desire, and um, Michael Redgrave had seen me in a play at a theatre called the Embassy Theatre in Swiss Cottage, and. Um, told Olivier about me and the next thing I got was a summons to see the great man and uh, he offered me a role in Streetcar Named Desire and the understudy of both male leads uh, which eventually I played. Yeah, yeah, you got on to the male lead uh, pretty soon and after that you went on to uh, Ustinov's Love for Colonels? That's right, yes I did and that, that ran for over two years also. And you went on and on and on, and I know you played Baron von Trapp in the uh, original, was it? The original Broadway production of Sound of Music. And how did you get from London to Broadway? I was actually imported. Uh, there was a play being cast called Tonight in Samarkand, starring Louis Jourdain. And um, they wanted, uh, for some reason, uh, somebody had seen me in London in a couple of plays and, and uh, there was a role in it of, of a French police inspector and uh, decided to import me for it. And did you return to London or was that the beginning of your stay in uh, permanent stay in the US? It was basically the beginning of my permanent stay. That's not, I mean, of course I returned to London uh, from time to time to visit, but I actually um, sold the house that I had in London after that and I, I never returned to live in London. Now whether you like it or not uh, you're very much identified in the United States with Tevye in this touring production of Fiddler. How many performances did you give? It's well over 2000 actually somebody counted them uh, 2094. I was not vain enough to count but somebody else kept count and um, that's over over a period of 37 years. And you moved to Hollywood or were you summoned to go to Hollywood? Did you want to break into films and just move there? Um, I went to Hollywood because I, I, I was in a film that was actually shot in the south of France and, and then needed some additional scenes and I went to Hollywood then and, and then from then started a, a, a sort of a, a ping-ponging journey between the east and the west coast. Um, I, I was making movies and television and back to the theater. Uh, my agents kept yelling at me that if I'd stayed in Hollywood my career would have been much bigger in, in films, but I refused to be uh, shackled. You know, I've counted more than 35 films in which you acted, that was including such famous uh, films as African Queen with Bogart, Fiddler, even with Topo, Le Molle Picon, Fair Lady, and at least five more in which you starred, including My Side of the Mountain, The Assassination Game, I noticed. Uh, that's quite a collection. Of all the films, which gave you most pleasure to make? The Russians are coming. Uh, it was fun. And also, I spoke only Russian in the film. 
Uh, and there's more was a catchphrase of a famous comedian, and you did lots more, like uh, 80 TV productions, I think, including the Dibbuk, and of course, Victory at Entebbe, about the famous rescue, and the many guest appearances, for instance, in even in Dr. Kildare, which was very popular in the UK, and many documentaries of all the work you did. Which is your your overall favorite? It's tough to say. I'm sort of uh, torn between uh, Tevi, of course, uh, where, where I played my own grandfather, basically, and Zorba, uh, who was not at all like my own grandfather, but he was somebody who was so free that I envied him. Somewhere I read you called yourself, you're not a specialist, but a general practitioner of the arts. I don't know if you remember where or when you said it. But can you explain what you mean? Um, Yes, because I have a number of talents uh, in the acting field alone, um, acting and singing, musician. As I'm a musician, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm also a poet. So if, if you have a multiplicity of talents and you apply them all, it rattles people. They want to put you in a cubbyhole, a pigeonhole of one thing. Well, what is he? Is he an actor? Is he a singer? Uh, is he a, a lecturer? Uh, well, do me a favor. I'm capable of doing several uh, of these, and I'm trying to do them. Try to do them all professionally and professionally well. I try to excel in them. Um, usually, people who have, or at least they admit, if they admit that you have more than one talent, they insist that one talent is your main talent, and the others are sidelines. Mm -hmm. I don't have sidelines. What I don't do well, I don't do. Well, I must say, all the things that I've read and heard about you and seen of you, you indeed do them well, and you're a very versatile artist. So I know also that the guitar is very close to your heart. In fact, already in the late 40s, you were the center of attraction of a group of friends in their early 20s who often spent time together in a London coffee bar singing Zionist songs to your guitar accompaniment. I'm sure you remember that. I know it because I was one of them. And uh, looking at your programs, I see that today you're playing to and acting and singing to uh, much larger audiences uh, and accompanied by symphony orchestras. I even think you appeared in operas, is that right? I did, yes. I did uh, participated in three operas with major opera companies in the United States. Um, that's not my main shtick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you do like the guitar. Very much, yes. And you have, if I'm right, recorded something like 20 albums of songs. I have, yes. These days, nobody ever calls them albums anymore. They're supposed to be CDs. But unfortunately, of all those albums, only four, no, six were made into CDs. And of those, uh, only two are still available. But um, maybe this year, when I'm turning 80, um, they will reissue or issue a retrospective of my work. I look forward maybe to get uh, one or two of your CDs so we can play them on the radio. Now, how do you fit all that into your busy schedule? <laughs> I ignore the passage of time and also ignore the, rest the, the constrictions of time. Um, what I do is, since I, I go at everything um, as though it were the only thing that I ever did, I make time. I don't have time. I make time. I would be remiss if I wouldn't ask you about the many honorary posts that you held over the years, like president of the Actors' Equity for nine years. Can you list some of them? 
Well, actor's equity was not an honorary post. That was a real post. I was elected <laughs> to run the union, and I did. Uh, no, I'm, I, have, I have others. I'm now the, the head of the uh, Associated Actors and Artists of America, which is an, an umbrella organization. I was a member of, of um, uh, Amnesty International USA. Uh, anyway, there are so many. Uh, some of them, as you say, are honorary. Others are really jobs. I do them. Well, I knew you would be too modest to, to mention the Lifetime Achievement Award that you received in 1997 from the National Foundation of Jewish Culture and uh, that you also hold honorary doctorates from universities, I think the University of Hartford in Connecticut and Seton Hall. And f from some comment that I read that would have pleased your mother. Yes, because she always wanted to say, my son, the doctor. <laughs> Very good. Now, there is one post, you just mentioned it, uh, that intrigues me. It is uh, that you were both member of Amnesty International. Now, uh, Amnesty International is known to be anti-Israel. How could you reconcile that with your conscience? First of all, I was involved with Amnesty International uh, at a time when it concerned itself with prisoners of conscience all over the world in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in, in Latin America. It had very little concern with Israel at the time, and, and only later when, when Israel uh, and, and the Palestinian question uh, came into the foreground, uh, long after I'd been involved with Amnesty, uh, did they concentrate themselves. And, and frankly, uh, when Israel commits uh, acts that are willful and um, hurtful to, to prisoners, uh, Israel ought to be called on the carpet as well as anybody else. Uh, I think Israel is much less of an offender than, than anybody else in the world uh, who um, has ever uh, imprisoned people for their beliefs. It's different. Imprisoning for beliefs is one thing, and that I protest against all the time. Imprisoning for acts I have no quarrel with. All right. <laughs> now, in a few days, Theodore Bikel, may I actually, I used to call you, anybody still call you that? Uh, only when they call me up to the Torah. <laughs> okay. uh, in a few days, you'll celebrate your 80th birthday, and uh, mazel tov to you. Now, isn't it time to retire? No. I don't believe in retirement. I once looked up the word in the dictionary just to make sure it exists. Uh, no, I will retire when I die. Thank you for listening. Until next time, this is Walter Bingham wishing you a safe and healthy week. May the Lord of the Universe guide our government to act in the interest of the nation. And of course, would listeners please devote a little time to visit our elderly neighbours. Thank you. Goodbye. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. 
advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 